0: When was the last time that God said something that you disagreed with? When was the last time that he said something that you hated? When was the last time that you opened your Bible and you read something and you thought, God, surely that's not you. Surely that's not who you are. Surely that's not what you do. Surely that's not what you call me to do. When was the last time that God actually offended you? So I'm going to start out on a really bold note here and say that if you've never had that moment of absolutely disagreeing with God when you read your Bible, then you're not reading your Bible right. It's not the true God of the Bible that you're worshiping. It's yourself. See, it's pretty simple. Like, God is different than we are, He's bigger than we are, stronger than we are, wiser than we are. Just everything that we are not, he's better at. And so if you, a creature, can read your Bible, which points you to the creator, and if that creator looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, votes like you, if he does everything exactly how you would do it, then you're not worshiping God, you're worshiping yourself. Our passage for today is one that I think will offend many of us. All right, I I don't think that there is a way that we can read this passage and not be wounded. But I do think that if we come to this passage and we read it slowly, and we read it humbly, and we say at the very beginning, before we even get started, that God, you are God and I am not. And on the front end, if we just lay everything down before him, and say, Lord, would you teach us and would you conform us more into the image of your son? I, there is not a way that our, we don't walk away with our prides wounded and being more conformed into the image of Jesus. So as Mark read for us, we are picking up in our study of the book of John. We are in the second half of chapter 2. And John chapter 2 is a tale of two halves. The first half, you had the wedding at Cana, and then you have Jesus cleansing the temple. And last week, in the first half, Jesus is that guy that you really wanted to invite over to your backyard barbecue. Like, when the party started to die down, like, he turned the volume back up to 10. Like, he was saving the good wine to last. Like, even once the people were already kind of feeling it and feeling pretty good, like, he just gave them more. It was just joy and love going all around. So, party Jesus was last week. And then in the very next paragraph... Jesus is flipping tables. He's making a whip and actually using it. He's yelling at the top of his lungs. He is absolutely making a scene. When Lauren read this passage, she was like, yeah, in the first half of John 2, Jesus got glad, but now he got mad. All right? And so here at Redemption Parker, something that we often say is that we always want our affections for Jesus to be growing. And that means that we want to love what Jesus loves. But if we want all of our affections to be in line with Jesus, then that also means that we have to hate what Jesus hates. And in this passage, there are two specific things that Jesus hates. So if you'll pick up with me in verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Passover is what the Jews celebrated and commemorated and remembered from when God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt to when he parted the Red Sea. And so they would travel from all over Israel, and they would descend on Jerusalem and on the temple. That was the geographic hub of the Jewish faith. And part of the Passover ritual required that animals be sacrificed. Okay, and so people were having to travel from 150 miles away, and they were having to bring these animals to sacrifice. All right, and so so imagine like what it would be like to try and drag an ox 150 miles, like up mountains, through valleys, over rivers. Like it is a a difficult thing to do. And so, in order to relieve that burden on the travelers, there were merchants who set up shop in the temple. And they provided the animal so that you didn't have to bring it with you. You could just buy one when you got there. So these merchants were doing a good service. Like they were helping the people worship. The Passover required animals, they provided that. They were making it easier for people to worship. So why would Jesus get so mad here? We get the answer in verse 16. Jesus said, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Trade was the key word that had come to define the temple of God. Not prayer, not worship, not humility, trade. So the merchants had gone beyond the God-honoring service of providing the animals, and they saw an opportunity to spiritually manipulate the people and to turn a profit. They knew that the people had to buy from them, so they were able to just jack up the prices and take advantage, and they were uh, economically oppressing those who were trying to humbly worship. So in their greed, they transformed the spiritual atmosphere of worship that was filled with prayers and confessions, and they turned it into an atmosphere of manipulation and economic oppression. The focus on worshiping God had been replaced with worship of trade. The love of God had been replaced with a love of money. Jesus talked about money more than he talked about any other thing. He talked about it more than love. He talked about it more than heaven and hell combined. Jesus told 39 parables and 11 of them were about money. That's over 25%. So if I were going to pick one word that would describe Jesus, I, I would go with glorious. I think that's what he is. But that's not who we are. Jesus knows what is in man. That's what verse 23 says. So the reason that he has to talk about money so much is because he knows how easily we are tempted by it. And so all throughout his teachings, he, he's repeatedly showing us how to view and how to use money, but also the dangers that money poses to us. In Matthew 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In his conversation with the rich young man, Jesus said that it is easier for a camel, which was the biggest animal that he could think of, to go through the eye of a needle, the smallest thing that he could think of. He said that a camel, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And was It wasn't being spiritual or metaphorical like he meant it. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. Jesus was painting a picture and he said you cannot serve two masters. And for one master, he chose God. Do you remember what he chose for the other master? He could have picked any other thing. He could have picked power or sex or fame, but what Jesus identified as God's biggest rival in our hearts for our trust and our security was money. And the merchants, they had chosen their master. They chose to worship money rather than God. And money's not bad necessarily, but it is very dangerous because our hearts are so quick to run to it and to look to it for our comfort and security. So Jesus' first critique, I think, can really challenge us. We are in Parker, Colorado, one of the wealthiest places in the world. And this can really challenge us. So I'm just going to speak to probably the poorest people in the room and let the people in the higher tax bracket do some self-reflection. Um, and so, to the people who are either in college or just coming out of college, if you're working a part-time job just to try and make rent and, and eat food, like even if you got significant student loans, just by being in this room, you are probably one of the richest people in the world. You can read. You're sitting in air conditioning. I doubt you're wearing the same clothes that you wore yesterday, okay? And so just by virtue of being in this room, we are some of the wealthiest people in the world, and we need to take this text seriously. Now, we don't sell animals at each each entry to the pay centers. This might not literally be a house of trade, but I think if we were going to contextualize Jesus' critique, if we were going to take it and apply it to us here today, we might be able to say it like this. Have you made your bank account your house of worship? Do you sleep easier at night when you know you have a lot of money in the bank? Do you pray less? Do you acknowledge your dependence on God less when that number is high? And if You answer yes, and that probably means that you have an ideology problem, and you're you're trusting God, or you're trusting money more than God, the gift over the giver. Now, to be both biblically faithful and clear, I do want to say that money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. So even Jesus used material things in his ministry, He and the disciples had a boat that they used to travel. Uh, Andrew and Peter, they had a house that kind of served as a hub that they can come and go from. So yes, Jesus did use material things, but at the same time, the Son of Man did not have a place to lay his head. And I don't want to pull the punch that this text is throwing of us. And the overall tone of the Bible, and especially of Jesus' teaching, is that money is dangerous. If any of us saw a camel go through the eye of a needle, we would call that a miracle. And it will take a miracle for a rich person to get into heaven. And God is God, and because he's God, he can do it. But we need to be very careful in what we trust and what we look to for security. So this isn't a call to renounce everything, to go live in a cave. This is a call to simplify Our lives, to remove excess, to fight against the rampant materialism of our culture, and to extend our discipleship over into our finances. To trust that God, not money, no material thing, but God is where our faith and security lies. That was Jesus' first condemnation. That was the what, the love of money. That was the what. His second condemnation is all about the where where this was happening, really mattered to Jesus. Uh, The text quotes Psalm 69. It says, "...the zeal for my father's house will consume me, and you have made my father's house a house of trade." So Jesus was angry because the merchants were selling inside of the temple. Now, we know from the other gospel accounts and from history uh, that they used to be set up outside of the temple... And the way that the temple worked is at the very center, you had the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God dwelt, and only the high priest could go in there, and he could only go in one day of of the year on the Day of Atonement. Just outside of that was the court of the priests, where the other priests could go. Outside of that was the court of the Jews, where the ethnic people of God could go. And then at the very uh, most outer ring was the court of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, they were not ethnically Jewish. They were not born into the people of God. But they still sought to worship the one true God. And so imagine what it must have been like for these Gentiles who were trying to worship. Ever been to a zoo? All right. Think of all the smells, the sounds that were coming from the animals, think of the bartering going on between the people, the clanging money as it hits the pots. Like this would be like trying to hold a prayer service at a Broncos game. And the merchants didn't care that they were disrupting the worship of the Gentiles. Like they're just there to make a buck. Like who cares? But but the really horrible thing about this and what gets Jesus really riled up is that the Jews didn't care either. They didn't care that the merchants had set up in the court of the Gentiles. See, the the Jews were thinking, we're the ethnic people of God, like God has chosen us to be his people. We're, We're the insiders, we're the elite. And so we don't care what happens to people who don't look like us, sound like us, think like us. If they're not like us, then it doesn't really matter. And when these Jews showed a disregard for those that they considered outsiders, that is when Jesus absolutely lost his mind. A few months back, when I was about to graduate from seminary and I was starting the process of looking for a church job, my pastor in Birmingham gave me some really helpful advice on how to navigate the church job search whole process. He said, do your best to get fired in the interview get fired in the interview, a.k.a. don't just put on your good face and say all the things that you know your employer is going to agree with. Just get all the stuff that you might disagree with, lay it out on the table up front, rather than waiting a year or two, and then just letting it all blow up. All right, so this is my fourth time to preach here at Redemption Parker, and so I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table. We were in Reno. I was inspired by the gamblers. I'm laying my cards out. As I look around the room, I think we would all say that the reason that we come to this specific church is for theological reasons. We agree with the focus of the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. We're uh, all about church planning. We're all about community, being a gospel community. I think we would all say that. But as I look around, I can't help but notice that there is a type of person it comes to Redemption Parker, and the vast majority of the people in here are white, upper middle class or at least upwardly mobile, they are very well educated, and as best I can tell, in the small time that I've been here, tends to be politically conservative. so, so that's the majority culture. and so we would say that you know theology is kind of the filter that brings us in through the door, but uh, those categories of Race, economics, money, politics also kind of seems to be some identifying markers that are at play here. And Lord, I do pray that it is your gospel message that would offend and not your gospel messenger. So I do pray for clarity here and for forgiveness if I err. But but I, I do want to take a moment to Think about why are some of those other categories, why are they seeming to define our church? So we are a mostly white congregation. And I'm not going to say any of this out of white guilt. Like, I don't doubt the sovereignty of God and he knit me together in my mother's womb. Like, he created me to be a way too tall, kind of socially awkward white boy, and that's okay. Like, I'm comfortable in who I am. That's fine. But But let's just start with the lowest hanging fruit possible when it comes to race in the Bible for us. Jesus was not white. And I, I think we've all heard that, hopefully. Hopefully we've, we've all gotten that, but actually think about it. Jesus does not look like you, most of you. He does not have light skin, blonde eyes, or uh, br- blue eyes, blonde hair. He's got dark skin, dark hair, brown eyes. The gospel did not come straight to America. There are like 1,500 years of history that happened, meaningful history. Christianity didn't begin in 1776. Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, "Go to, from Jerusalem, go to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know what's at the ends of the earth? We are. We are those far-off people. Okay? America is not at the center of God's redemptive plan. A Middle Eastern man is at the center of God's redemptive plan. It got to, the gospel got to Africa and to India and to China long before it ever got here. As we've heard from this pulpit before, that the cross is not draped in an American flag. And I think there is an ethnocentrism that marks a lot of the American church, and I think the Bible has a lot to say about it. You can go towards the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12, God said to Abraham that through your child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So not just God bless America, but through Jesus, God bless Haiti and India and Trinidad and Cuba. God bless all of the nations. Ephesians 2, we read that because of Christ's work on the cross, that the dividing wall of hostility that culturally separated the Jews from the Gentiles, that that wall has been torn down. And that there is no reason why two people who look completely different, who have nothing in common, cannot come together and be made one in Jesus. In Revelation 5 and 7, at the end of the Bible, we read that currently and for all of eternity, surrounding the throne of God are peoples from every tribe, every language, every nation, and every people. Which for some of us means that heaven is going to be a lot less white than many of us think it's going to be. All right, so so what about politically? It's my hope that you could hear me preach every single week for 25 years and not know which political side I lean towards. It's my hope that some weeks you would hear me fighting tooth and nail for the sanctity of life and for the rights of the unborn, and the very next week you would hear me fighting not only for the rights of the unborn, but for the rights of the already born. And for some reason, because of sin in the world, those rights and that dignity simply being made in the image of God are being violated. We as a church have to fight for the least, the last and the lost, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And so you will never, I'm just speaking for myself, hear me back a political party from the pulpit, not because the Bible doesn't speak to politics, not because we shouldn't be engaged in it, but because my ultimate allegiance is not to a political party. To Jesus, my hope is not in any president. It's in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If I if I can steal a line from somebody else, I don't follow a donkey. I don't follow an elephant. I follow a lamb. Did you know there was political diversity among the disciples? They they didn't all agree. Look at Simon and look at Matthew. So Matthew was a tax collector. He was a big government guy. He wanted to see the government grow. He wanted it to have a big sphere of influence on everybody. And then there was Simon, the zealot, who hated the Roman government. He wanted to tear it all down. He wanted to see it burn. And so we have to ask ourselves, how did these two people get along? They could not be further apart on the political spectrum. It's because what united them, their common ground wasn't their politics. It wasn't Rome, it wasn't rebellion, it was Jesus. That's what united them. And and that really is what is at the heart of this passage. What is uniting you? Or what's dividing you? Is it your ethnicity? Is it your culture? Is it your background? And if it is, that's garbage. Get rid of it. The, the, The most beautiful picture I can imagine would be a 92-year-old white Republican and an 11-year-old black female Democrat being able to come together and say, you're different than me and that's fine. I'm different than you and that's fine. That's not what unifies us. What unifies us is Jesus. He has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and we can still come together and worship. So with all that said advocating for diversity, let me add an addendum. We are in Parker, Colorado. That's the reality. It is a place that is 92% white. Average age is about 30 to 60 with a few kids. Median income is about 80 to 100,000. Maybe you make more. I don't know. Politically conservative. That, that's our context. And I do believe that every church should look like a cross-section of its community. So if you were to take a census of Parker and take a census of redemption, hopefully those would be very similar. And so because our context is not very diverse, is it probably unrealistic, at least for the foreseeable future, to expect that redemption will be 25% uh, Latina, 25% Asian, black, white, because our context isn't like that. So a few summers ago, I went to a church in Brooklyn, downtown Brooklyn, and they had 60 members, and I think, if I remember correctly, 37 different nationalities were represented. And so it's a lot easier for a church in downtown Brooklyn to be diverse because their context is diverse. If they weren't diverse in downtown Brooklyn, like then you need to ask, why can only one group worship here? What walls are you putting up? Where are you dividing people? So even if... Parker is never diverse. One, we need to ask why not. Are there any systemic reasons or cultural reasons why only one group can live here? But two, while we as a church may never be diverse, at a minimum, we must be diverse-friendly. We have to do whatever we can to be friendly and open and hospitable to people that do not look like us, talk like us, vote like us, and have our same cultural experience. So we should not feel guilty if we're not diverse and in a community that is not diverse, but we are guilty of the sins of these Jewish leaders if we are not committed to being at minimum open and hospitable to people who do not fit the cultural insider mold. Because that would mean that something other than the cross of Jesus is unifying us. Jesus is saying that the cultural walls and your unwillingness to care for the outsider, that's, that's rubbish. And so he turned the, the temple upside down. He flipped the tables, uh, threw out all the money, used a whip and started beating people. Just made a huge scene. And what he did was so offensive that the Jews came up to Jesus and asked him in verse 18... What sign do you give us for doing these things? Okay, like, who gave you this authority? Who do you think that you are? And Jesus was a master at using his surrounding environment to make a point. So he looked around at the temple. He looked around at the mess that he had made. He looked around at the courts dividing the people. He looked at the heavy stones and the Holy of Holies. And he said, destroy this temple, and in three days... I will build it up again. This is one of those times in John where Jesus is speaking kind of cryptically. He's speaking on one level down here, but the people, they just get it on the surface level. They don't really follow him. And they're like, I mean, yeah, you flip some tables. You might work out a little bit, but it took us 46 years to build all this. Like, how do you think you can do this in three days? What they didn't get is that he wasn't talking about the temple that they had built. He was talking about the temple of his own body. You remember a few weeks ago when we started our study of John? We read in John chapter 1 verse 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And as we studied, we, we learned that what that means is that God is the perfect and full and final expression of God. Uh, Jesus is the perfect, full, final expression of who God is. That all of God's attributes, his holiness, wrath, eternalness, sovereignty, goodness, mercy, all of it is wrapped up perfectly in, in this word, Jesus. And then in 1 14, we read that that word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in former times, God had to dwell with people through a medium, through the Holy of Holies. There wasn't direct access. And what Jesus is saying here is that destroy this temple, and in three days, I will build it up. He's saying that you've had the Holy of Holies for a really long time, but I am the Holy of Holies walking around with you. You've been making all these sacrifices. Yes, that was commanded to you under the old covenant, but do you know what Hebrews 9 and 10 says? It says that the blood and goats of bulls never saved anybody. All that they did, all of those Old Testament or Old Covenant practices and rituals in the temple, they were signs. They were pointing to something. They were shadows. They weren't the full and final thing. And what Jesus is saying here, when he's saying that I am that temple, he's saying that all those signs that pointed, they were pointing to me. I am the substance which formed those shadows. They are pointing to me. You've sacrificed animals for a long time. That's not doing you any good. I'm going to go to the cross and I am going to be a sacrifice. And because, because my blood is human and because my blood is holy, it can do what those the blood of goats and bulls can never do. It can actually save you. So Jesus is saying, look to me. I'm the Savior. Look to me in faith and you can have eternal life. Jesus was unlike us in every single way. He was poor. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was holy. There was no sin in him. He was a Middle Eastern man. He didn't look like most of us. But though he wasn't like us, he still loved us. He sought us while we were still sinners. And he loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of his work, people who have absolutely nothing in common by the world's standards can come together under the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no dividing wall of hostility. The only thing that should unite us is Jesus. Let me pray for us that the Lord would give us grace to hear this. Lord, your cross is powerful. It is offensive. It's transformative. And we ask that by your spirit you would convict us of sin? Would you convict us of the sin that we don't even know about? Would you bring us to the cross, make us low, get rid of anything in us that does not reflect your gospel? Would you continue to transform us into the image of Jesus? Amen.